please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Golds for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales Tasmania book, The Flins of Sandy Bay. In Tasmania, over 100 years ago, Lily Flynn and her husband, Professor Theodore Flynn, celebrated the birth of their only son, Errol, and the first Flynn to be born in Tasmania. The years to follow were happy times for Theodore in his teaching role at the university and for the family enjoying the chilly beach of Sandy Bay. Little did they know that Errol would become Hollywood's favourite son in the early to mid 20th century and to die too soon at the age of 50. This is the story of the Flynns of Sandy Bay. I think I'm in love. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I honestly have to say, being a Generation X, I didn't know a lot about Errol Flynn. Probably, you know, everyone in Australia, you know, of a certain age knows Errol Flynn, knows he was beautiful and Hollywood actor. Have you ever seen an Errol Flynn film? Uh, Yes, I have. Uh Um, But I also can remember being left wondering, every time someone would mention Errol Flynn, they'd say... Tasmanian, Errol Flynn. Yeah. And I thought, well, he's Australian. But no, he was always the Tasmanian. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I did see a couple of his films. They're quite old now. Yeah, oh, yeah, very old. But nevertheless, Theodore was as enigmatic and charming as his son. So Theodore and Lily moved to Tasmania. Theodore was a professor and he got work at the University of Tasmania where Errol was born. Theodore was a tall, strapping man. Errol's description of Theodore showed the love between father and son. He said... The rapport was with my father. He looked Irish. He had red, bushy eyebrows, black hair. He was lean, angular, full of charm, goodwill, and a certain professorial quietness. He spoke with a clipped British accent tinged with touches of Irish brogue. His father was very much liked as a teacher. He was described as uh, full of pranks, a flamboyant teacher, tall amongst his successes, a strong character, and took great interest in his students, especially those who showed an interest in his subjects. Once there, the Flynn family of Sandy Bay actively participated in their new Tasmanian community. Theodore joined the Field Naturalist Club, which he had an interest in marine biology, and he was involved with them for 10 years, actually being a chairman for a couple of years. He was also on the Council of the Royal Society in 1911 and curator of the Tasmanian Museum of Botanical Gardens. So he was an active participant in the Tasmanian community as well as being a university lecturer. When Theodore first arrived at the University of Tasmania, he was appointed as a lecturer, but there was a bequest which created a new biology department and it included funds to endow a chair. So he became professor of biology to the Tasmanian University, mm. a brand new lab and equipment. His passion and other interests were marsupials, and of course Tasmania was pretty good for marsupials. It sure was. <laughs> Wasn't real good at keeping them. <laughs> no, well, that's another story. And did Errol get involved in this? Well, Errol was a little boy during all this time, but I think this formulated his life, the sea and the fresh air and the study. So it's an interesting thing too. When Errol was three, his father, Theodore, joined Mawson's Australian Antarctic Expedition as a biologist. He met Mawson at school and university. Isn't that funny? They said what he liked and experienced in that trip, he met up with enthusiasm and he delivered a presentation to the Royal Society on the findings. And as a consequence... He was commemorated with the naming of Flynn Lake on the west coast of Macquarie Island after him. Ah, there you go. Yeah. But anyway, as he grew up, young Errol became actively involved in his father's business and yep. work and yep. passion. Influenced by both parents, his mother loved stage and singing and played piano. His father was a man of nature. So as he grew up, Errol's father would pay him for rat kangaroos or batongs because they were studying them at the university. So Errol wrote in his autobiography, when school finished, I raced home to be at his side, to hurry out to the backyard where he had cages of specimens of rare animals. Through his father's activity, I made my first venture into commerce. 
He bought all the kangaroo rats he could get hold of for university. Cornered the market. <laughs> he said, I learned to set box traps in the hills of nearby Mount Wellington and he paid me a shilling a head for them. Wow. Yeah. And his father described Errol as a happy, sunny little fellow, always getting into boyish scrapes. I love the story. This is a classic scrape. Errol was invited to a children's birthday party at the bishop's house in Tasmania. He was only a young lad and while there, Errol's mother Lily got a call from the bishop's wife saying, I'm terribly sorry, Mrs Flynn, but... I'll have to send your little boy home. We left him in the garden for a moment. He's tipped all the little girls into the ornamental fountain. <laughs> so I think it's fair to say even then, Errol liked to tease the girls, but perhaps they weren't that fond of him on that occasion. Anyway, Theodore said later it was his charm that got Errol into trouble. <laughs> he did like the theatre. At the age of nine, he had a minor role as a page boy. Enid Lyons. Enid Lyons. Her yeah. husband went on to become the Prime Minister. Exactly. She would say later on that he was a handsome boy of nine at the time with a fearless, somewhat haughty expression, already showing the sang Freud for which he would later become famous throughout the civilised world. He did actually have a sister. He was 10 when his sister Rosemary yeah. was born, quite a big age difference. Errol himself said that of his life in those early days in Tasmania, of which he spent most of his childhood, the two main streams of thinking in the family were of the earth, that is the primordial creatures in the nearly impenetrable Tasmanian wilderness in the eternal oceans. My primary interest became the sea. I would listen to anyone who would talk of it. And did he get involved with the sea? Oh, he sure did. Despite his father being so learned, Errol, however, was not. He railed against authority and he was expelled from several Hobart schools. Unfortunately, I don't know whether that embarrassed his father a great deal, but as soon as he turned 18... That love of the sea took over and Errol departed to discover the world. It was 1927 and he secured a job with a shipping company that went to New Guinea. So he wasn't afraid of hard work. He worked as a tobacco plantation overseer, mm-hmm. did some gold prospecting. And he had a bit of an interest in politics too. I suspect that came from his parents. And he penned several articles for the Sydney Bulletin on life in the jungle. <laughs> he returned home and his father had bought him a, a yacht, the Sirocco. He was 21 now and he sailed it from Sydney back to New Guinea, which was something like 1,660 nautical miles for the sailors listening. Yeah. And he sailed with some friends. Tasmanian Mercury reported on the trip. And, of course, they didn't know who Errol was then, so he was reported as his father's son. So this ran in 13th of March 1930. To set sail from Sydney for New Guinea in a 13-ton yacht is something of an undertaking and certainly it is not an adventure most people would face with equanimity. Yet the crew of the good ship Sirocco... <laughs> which has just set off on this venture, will not fail through lack of keenness. The navigator is Errol Flynn, a son of Professor Flynn of Hobart. And look at this, another Tasmanian, ex-Cambridge man, T. Adams is one of the four. Uh-huh. No relation? It could be. Well, the Adams side of the family comes from Tassie. So. Well, there you go. Well, one of your lot was hanging out with Errol. <laughs> anyway, Errol told his father they ran short of food and oil on the um, journey, so they pulled into a port to get some funds. And there, outside a boxing booth... There was a huge gorilla of a man called Battling Bilson. He offered five pounds if he could last three rounds with him. So Errol was six foot two. His other companions didn't come close to it, so he ducked under the ropes, got down to his underpants and started slogging. Errol told his father, I got the five pounds and we bought food for a week, but I'd taken so many punches on the chin I couldn't eat for a week. (laughs) So back in Tassie, Theodore lost his chair. The funding was cut for research, and that's when he actually left Tasmania. He'd been 22 years there. Yeah. Then he took up the university chair at the Queen's University in Belfast and he remained there until retiring in 1948. Meanwhile, Errol, still not great financial management skills and still doing the jobs he could just get his hands on, he said, my problem lies in reconciling my gross habit with my net income. <laughs> <laughs> and he racked up quite a few dicks. So 
He actually arrived back in Sydney just in time, as luck would have it, to get a role in the Sydney-based production called In the Wake of the Bounty. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a claim that there's a connection between the Flynn family. And yeah, his mother, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Lily was related to midshipman Edward Young, who was on the Bounty and a participant in the mutiny, and it was also discarded to the island along with Fletcher Christian. But it was Fletcher Christian's role that Errol got. And, of course, you know, being dashing, he did a mighty fine job of looking the part, but the film wasn't a success at all, despite the shoot on location and the attention to detail. In fact, it was Clark Gable's film Mutiny on the Bounty that was a big success several years later. But it doesn't matter. He'd got his acting chops now and he was off. So he moved to England. He was 24 at the time and he picked up a number of roles and he went to the Northampton Repertory Theatre and there he actually got some acting training. But he was discovered. You know how in the old days mm, you were discovered? Yeah. Discovered by Irving Asher from Warner Brothers who saw him and thought, yeah, none of his roles have been great, but he's got charisma and signed him up. And that was the start of a, a huge career. That was the start of it. And, of course, he married well. His first wife was an actress already established, Lily Demeter. Yep. And having her by his side helped because she opened up opportunities. Yeah, all that for him. So he scored a few minor roles, The Case of the Curious Bride and Don't Bet on Blondes, 1935. Who would? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> then came his big break, Captain Blood. Now, Warner Brothers considered several big names for that, including Leslie Howard and James Cagney. But Errol won the role and he played opposite 19-year-old Olivia de Havilland and he would do another seven films with Olivia. Now, I've got to admit, the only time I ever knew of Olivia, and again, I'm showing, you know, my Generation X here, was from Gone with the Wind because she played the wife of the soppy character that Scarlett was in love with the whole time that yeah, yeah. kept saying, him. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only time I can remember Olivia. But anyway, she went on to do seven films with, with Errol, Errol and supposedly they had great charisma on screen, the pair of them together. So he was off and running. International movie star. And beautiful. So The Charge of the Light Brigade, 1936, was a hit yep. with Olivia again. It was Warner Brothers' number one hit movie for the year. Next came Green Light, where he played a doctor, then The Prince and the Pauper, and Another Dawn, and The Perfect Specimen. All those films were in one year. Big year, wasn't it? Yeah, big year. 1937. Sure was. And then he also, while doing that, took a time out and wrote a book about his adventure sailing around Australia as a youth titled Beam Ends. Now, you know, I said he had this passion for politics. In 1937, yeah. he travelled to Spain at the peak of his bankability as a star because he was impassioned by the Civil War there. And he worked as a war correspondent. Mm. Unfortunately, he travelled with a photographer called Herman Urban who had Nazi connections, which blackened his reputation a bit. But an esteemed Hollywood director, Vincent Sherman, said, Errol wasn't racist or harboured prejudice of any kind. He just didn't care who you were. But the next year, Errol's back at the studio with The Adventures of Robin Hood. I reckon most people would know that's that. That's the one movie of his I saw, I oh, think. Oh, okay, yeah, 1938. Yeah. And again, oh, well, well, I didn't see it in 1938. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, all right then, if you say. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was with Olivia again. And it was a global hit made in Technicolor with the highest budget for a Warner Brothers film to date. And it returned that with a huge profit. He did the unsuccessful Forza Crowd after that with Olivia and then The Sisters in 38. That one was with Bette Davis, which did pretty well. And then he did the Dawn Patrol in 98 with the boys. It was Basil Rathbone and David Niven. It was an all-male cast and said to be one of fraternal good cheer. <laughs> I can just imagine. Despite his enormous profile, Errol tried to enlist to fight in the Second World War, but he failed of illness. The reporter started calling him a draft dodger and the studio wouldn't allow him to say about his illness or rejection because they didn't want their dashing, athletic, handsome box office star to be seen to have health problems. Mm. So he continued on. There was the 1940 film Santa Fe Trail where he's paired with Olivia de Havilland again. It was another hit amongst the highest grossing films of the year. And then he took a different direction. He played an amateur detective in 1941 in Footsteps in the Dark. I love the movie poster for this. It was with Brenda Marshall. It says, his first modern role for three years. So exciting. 
So mystifying. So romantic. Footsteps in the dark. Footsteps eh? in the dark. His co-star, Ralph Bellamy, said of the then 32-year-old Errol, he was a darling. Couldn't or wouldn't take himself seriously. Drank like there was no tomorrow. Had a bum ticker from the malaria he'd picked up in Australia. Also a spot of TB. Tried to enlist but flunked his medical, so he drank some more. Knew he wouldn't live into old age. He really had a ball in footsteps in the dark. And then that year, Lily and Errol gave birth to their only son, Sean. And then they divorced after seven years. His family remained a constant in his life. And despite the divorce, his parents remained in touch with Lily. But he continued this prolific film schedule. In 1942, he played in an Australian and a World War II film, Desperate Journey, a huge hit. And then he got the role he claimed was a favourite, Gentleman Jim Corbett uh-huh. in, the, in the film Gentleman Jim 1942. Now, we came across Gentleman Jim in our Brisbane book. We did, in the career of Peter Jackson, the boxer. Yeah. Uh, who Corbett said was the best boxer he ever faced. And Corbett went on and won the world title, yeah. uh, which Peter Jackson didn't get a go at, yeah. if you remember, because the bloke who held it said he wouldn't fight a black man. If his performance against Gentleman Jim was any indication, he would have been a world titleist. But anyway, Warner Brothers bought the rights to this from Corbett's widow, especially for Errol to play. It was bought for Errol. And he did all the training extensively in most of his own boxing scenes, and it was an enormous hit. Maybe it was the Australian way of being self-deprecating. Errol always had this lack of confidence in his ability. The director, Lewis Milestone, said of him, he always underrated himself. If you wanted to embarrass him, all he had to do was say how great he was in a scene, and he'd blush like a girl, <laughs> mutter, I'm no actor, and would go away somewhere and sit down. Hide in the corner. Yeah, yet he was consistently Warner Brothers' biggest box office star in many varied roles from mystery to adventure. Oh. His health was in decline. As I said before, he had that malaria and TB, and in 1942 he was 33 and he collapsed on the set. He said it was a mild heart attack in his autobiography. It'd be another 17 years until his heart did claim him, and he was 50. The remaining years, he kept pretty much doing the same thing, you know, adventure, rebellion, movies, fights. Drinking. Drinking, enjoying himself. He said, it isn't what they say about you, it's what they whisper. Mm. And he did little to discourage the whispers. Um, He took a number of wives during that time and had a number of children, which I won't go into great detail about, but you can read his autobiography of that. But his last wife was Patricia Wymore, 24. He said in his autobiography, she was reserved. She had beauty and dignity. She typified everything I long for, everything I am not. She was 33 when he died. Yep. And she never remarried. He died, as I mentioned, at 50. And it was while a friend was visiting Dr. Grant Gould in Vancouver. Errol was looking to sell him his yacht. And he complained of back pain. And he went into a room to lie down and said, I shall return. And two hours later, he suffered a heart attack and couldn't be revived. Um, Theodore, his father, said the doctors had warned him about his son and to expect the worst, that they didn't think he'd have a long life. But his father wrote an article at the time, which went to the Women's Weekly and a number of other publications. And he said his son was more sinned against than sinning. He gave examples where they were in a cafe or a restaurant one night and they had a bit of a discussion and Errol got a bit heated, nothing much, and someone tapped him on the sleeve and he changed the subject and moved on. But the next day the newspaper said, Errol Flynn, drunk and disorderly in Hollywood Cafe, famous star and uproar again. And his father was there at the time and said none of that happened. Yeah. Errol's reaction to this was nothing to worry about. Don't blame the newspaper. Someone in the studio has put them up to it. It's all publicity. There was another story about the time he was with an underage woman. It was when his sister Rosemary was staying with him. Mm-hmm. His father said they all said he was the most handsome man they'd ever had in Hollywood and his manners were perfect. Inevitably, I suppose, women were attracted to him. They simply could not leave him alone. Of their relationship, he wrote, the family's love for Errol ran like a golden thread through his all-too-short life. Errol's buried at Forest Lawn Memorial Cemetery oh, yeah. in California. He said he, it was a place... Place he hated. Uh, yeah. He's got a plaque there in memory of our father from his loving children. But he had an astonishing portfolio of stage and screen work, including more than 64 films and TV roles. 
and he lived up to his motto, I intend to live the first half of my life, I don't care about the rest. <laughs> Just quickly, what became of his mother? His mother died eight years after Errol. She was in a car accident, hit by a car crossing the street. His father, Theodore, died the year after his mother, nine years after Errol. At the time of his death, he was a resident in a nursing home in Hampshire, England, and was 85. Errol's sister, Rosemary, went to study at Queen's University in Belfast, but didn't finish her degree. She got married and great lover of the arts. She was married twice. She supported opera and orchestra and she died of cancer in Germany. Age 61 was survived by her husband. The sad story was Lily and Errol's son, Sean. He did a little bit of acting like his father, but it bored him, he said. So he took an interest in news and politics like his father. So he became a photojournalist and he secured a contract with Time magazine. He was on assignment in Cambodia yeah. when communist guerrillas captured Sean 28 and fellow photojournalist Dana Stone. They were never heard from again and declared dead in 1984. Lily died of Alzheimer's in 1994 in Florida. So remembering Errol, there is no grave, of course, in Tasmania, but there is memorials. There's the Errol Flynn Reserve, which we went to at Sandy Bay, which you can have a look at, and large lettering, 1909, a sculpture celebrating the year of Errol's birth, which is very Hollywood-esque and is on the same beach, a tribute to where Errol's star shone in the early days. <laughs> so you can go and check those out. After a brother's death, Rosemary gave a note that Errol had written to his parents. He didn't want them to have it before he died. And Theodore shared that note in his tribute article it read, I am more sorry than words can tell for any trouble I've caused you or for any shame you've ever felt about my life. I love you as I've always loved you. I close my eyes and relive the days when we were all together in Tasmania, in Belfast and in England. All the glitter and the girls who have been associated with my name mean nothing compared with those memories. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please rate, review and subscribe by pressing the Follow Us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well.